This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. everybody. It takes two, and some are hoping it takes three to uh, put together a trade deal. We do want to get you the latest on NAFTA because the headlines continue to cross uh, all week and certainly on this uh, Wednesday as well. Andrew Maeda covers this for us at Bloomberg News. He's global trade and economy reporter. He's at our bureau in Washington, D.C. Christina uh, Vittori is also back with us, associate professor of political science at West Virginia University on the phone from Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, Andrew, you know, (laughs) funnily, funnily, is that a word? No, it's not. Oh, funnily, funnily enough. Funnily, hey, enough. funnily enough, Jason and I were like, okay, what's the latest on NAFTA? Where are we in this process? We know the president came out earlier this week, talked about lots of progress when it comes to U.S. and Mexico, and then all of a sudden the Canadian uh, foreign minister quickly comes to Washington. Where are we, though? Where are we is that the Canadians have re-entered the talks. So the Americans and the Mexicans spent a lot of time uh, hammering out uh, their differences. They've come to a deal. The president says he wants to sign it. And uh, Canadian Foreign Minister Christopher Freeland arrived in Washington today, uh, sent out some pretty positive signals, I think, that, uh, you know, helped to boost the uh, Canadian dollar, basically saying that uh, they like the way things are headed. She did, however, caution that there's a lot of work to be done. So, Christine, I want to bring you in here because one of the questions that I have about this is, as Andrew said, you know, Christia Freeland shows up. She's very positive. But but I do wonder, given that the U.S. and Mexico were sort of going on on sort of a bilateral basis, was Canada, was Prime Minister Trudeau and, and Christian Freeland, his emissary on this, were they sort of standing on the sidelines, as one of my sons used to say, saying, what the heck? Like, what about us? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I definitely think that that nice. is the reaction you get from Canada right now. Um, Canada wasn't included in these talks. It's been five weeks since they've been involved in these NAFTA talks. And uh, it went rather quickly, in their opinion. However, I think this is um, another Trump strategy of putting Canada in a very tough place and being pressured very quickly to accept something by the end of the week. And our biggest trading partner, right, Um, Christina, is Canada. Yes. Um, we, you know, it, it goes back and forth between China and Canada, depending upon what year you're looking at. Uh, but our our trade balance with Canada, um, like it, I think right now, China is ahead technically, mm-hmm. um, but Canada, I mean, is not too far behind. You know, uh, Andrew, in our weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, we actually talked um, with uh, Matthew Phillips, our editor out there in D.C. as well, and, and just talked about kind of the behind-the-scenes process of putting together a trade deal. We all say, oh, my God, it's still we're still talking about NAFTA a year. But it's complicated. There are a lot of issues, and only about a third of the issues in NAFTA have actually been dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge agreement. I mean, we're talking about uh, hundreds of pages of uh, documents. I mean, uh, you know, no shortage of uh, work for uh, for the trade lawyers that 
these respective governments. Uh, but I think that one of the reasons why a lot of these uh, chapters haven't been closed yet is, I mean, my understanding is typically in a trade negotiation, you kind of leave some chapters open, you know, so as you get into the end game, you've got some sort of chips to bargain mm-hmm. with. Uh, you know, I think in, for Canada, it's going to come down to issues like their dairy sector, uh, which has some protections on it. President Trump wants those lifted. Uh, there's also a fairly arcane provision of the agreement known as Chapter 19, which uh, governs dispute resolution um, dispute uh, uh, settlement, and, but it's actually a very big deal to Canada. Uh, it goes back to uh, disputes with the U.S. over softwood lumber. In the past, this has actually been a de- deal breaker for them. So um, I think there are a lot of positive signs coming out of Canada. I mean, the Prime Minister actually said that he's hoping to to try to work with the U.S. T- timeline of a deal this week. But uh, they do have some red lines. So, Christina, let's talk about that because we're 48 hours away from Friday. Uh it feels like the Canadians need to do a deal. They probably want to do a deal, but does a deal get done? And what does that look like? And what does getting a deal done really mean in this context? I, I think we, the the way a deal would get done is to include Canada in this now bilateral agreement mm-hmm. with the U.S. and Mexico. I don't think that everything needs to be ironed out. I don't think we're going to have a you know, final draft of this, although uh, a lot of people are expecting the the whole point of the Friday deadline is to get that in front of Congress 90 days before the midterms, uh, but which is still cutting it a little close. But what we what we see going on is Canada doesn't have much wiggle room. Uh, The Canadian economy needs the U.S. market. And we know that right from an American perspective. We know that. However, uh, I, I think there is going to be there's going to be something at the last minute, and this is what I predict, that will help Trudeau save faith um, and get this deal done. Because hey, at the end, if Trump can if Trump can pull this off, this yeah. will be a win for him. Andrew, just got about 20 seconds left here. I mean, the things that are on the table at this point and being talked about, is it major changes? Is it a better deal for the United States? Well, I, I don't think it's the apocalypse that some people in the uh, business community were expecting, uh, you know, but I do think that changes to, uh, you know, the auto sector are significant. Is it going to change the uh, U.S. trade deficit writ large? I doubt it. Um, U.S. Uh, spends more than it saves, and it's probably going to be run trade deficits for the foreseeable future. Andrew Maeda, global trade and economy reporter for Bloomberg News down in Washington, D.C. with us, along with Christina Fattori, associate professor of political science at WVU, West Virginia University in Morgantown. Thanks so much for your thoughts. Not the apocalypse that people were expecting. I feel like that's kind of our base case here these days, Carol Masser. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to continue to track any more headlines uh, about that deal. All right, everybody, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, Jason Kelly, we are Bloomberg Radio. Once in a while, one of these stories comes along in Bloomberg Business Week where you just have to stop, pick it up, read it to the end. 
because you know you're going to be talking about it. And we have been talking about this one incessantly, Carol Masser and yes. myself. The writer oh is Christopher Flavelle. And the story is about Miami and water and not in the way you normally think about it. Christopher is joining us now from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio down in Washington, D.C. Chris, great to be with you. Amazing story. So come right out and tell us what's going on with water in Miami. Yeah, the, the point of this story was to look at some of the ways that climate change is pressuring Miami and maybe even threatening the long-term prospects of that city. Everyone talks about Miami as uh, being subject to flooding. It's well-documented. Sea level rise will probably eventually put a lot of Miami underwater. That's well-known. What I looked at was the other water problem, which is the drinking water in Miami and the ways in which climate change could really, really cause that drinking water to be not just more expensive but potentially undrinkable and perhaps a lot sooner than people think. You know, so, so what's what's happened to, to cause that? Because you actually went to the other side of Miami, shall we say, not the fancy beach side. You weren't <laughs> hanging out on South Beach, at least, that we know of for this story. Uh, where were you and what did you see? Yeah, if you, if you go into the, the sort of heart of Miami-Dade County towards the Everglades, away from the coast, you see a very different part of that region. You see a lot of infrastructure that's been there a long time. It was built before climate change. And the result is it's not really perfectly equipped to deal with the pressures of climate change. That's sea level rise, and it's heavier flooding, it's more intense rainstorms, and it's more toxic contaminants. There are 14 or so Superfund sites in Miami-Dade County. One of the concerns uh, is that more flooding will push those contaminants into the drinking water. That's one thing. Number two, sea level rise will push salt water into the drinking water. Number three, sea level rise will cause septic tanks to fail, push untreated human waste into the drinking water. Number four, it's a quick list. Number four, there is limestone mining in Miami-Dade County at the edge of the Everglades, and it creates giant holes in the aquifer. People I talk to say there's a big concern that climate change and flooding will push toxic contaminants into those holes, into those pits, into people's drinking water. All four things are happening at once, and none of them have easy solutions. All right. But many do have solutions, but sometimes they're costly, and that's the case here? Yeah. The, I think the, the real lesson with Miami is not that it's hopeless. It's something almost, almost more tragic which is that if you had enough money, if you had unlimited funds, you could probably solve these things. Miami doesn't, although it's a very, very wealthy city in certain areas. As a whole, the county is poorer than the U.S. average, and the result is they are struggling already to deal with keeping up their water infrastructure. Climate change makes that even more difficult, so they're going to have to find more money even as the costs are increasing already, and so are the problems. Jeez. All I'm just going to say is, Chris, we can't even get money to fix the bridges that are falling apart in front of us. I mean, how do we tackle something like this? I mean, who's, who's responsible? Is it national security issues, so it's a federal issue? Who's responsible? So I put that question to Gina McCarthy, who ran the EPA under President Obama. She said, you've really got to treat water issues and drinking water issues as a local issue. Ultimately, it's up to local officials to find solutions. They can go to federal and state officials for help, and in the past they have, but the atmosphere is one now where it's very hard to get meaningful federal and state grants for these enormously expensive projects. The county says it's going to spend $13.5 billion on new infrastructure projects just for water. 
Uh, and that's really before you account for some of these growing problems from climate change. So Moody's issued a report last fall saying they're aware of these problems. They think Miami Data is on top of it for now, but it all comes down to local willingness to raise those water rates, to pay the interest on those bonds. And they don't, frankly, no one knows if when push comes to shove, local officials will have sort of the wherewithal and the political appetite for that kind of that kind of action because no one likes their water rates going up, right? right. But if you look at the long-term threat, you have to do it now. It only gets harder the longer you wait. Chris Flavell is climate policy reporter for Bloomberg News down in Washington, D.C. He joins us there in our Bloomberg 99.1 studio. You can read that story. It's in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week, also already out on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. This raises so it. many questions, yeah. Carol. And one of the things we didn't get to that has really been on my mind is this whole notion of making these hard choices, the government, the federal government and local and state government having to make some hard choice about what do you fix? When do you do it? It calls to mind Hurricane Katrina in the aftermath. It calls to mind Puerto Rico and Hurricane Maria. All these things uh, that are not easy questions. Money can solve them, but there isn't, as Chris wisely pointed out, rightly pointed out, there's not an unlimited amount of money here. Well, and most people, a good CEO will tell you, you know, there's no way. It's, it's not. You can't run a company, run a country, run a city by crisis. They call me the seeker. I've been searching low and high. Yeah, searching long and high for yield. Uh, our next guest, um, managing the aggregate bond fund. It's called the Thornburg Strategic Income Fund. It's beating, by the way, most of its peers over the past five years in the 86th percentile, according to our own data here at Bloomberg, returning on average 3.7% annually. Uh, Let's talk strategy. Let's head to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Lonnie Erickson is Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Thornburg Investment Management, $6 billion in assets under management. Lon, nice to have you here with uh, Jason and myself. Um, where are you finding yield when you look uh, at the aggregate uh, or corporate bond market right now? Uh, sure. Hi, and uh, you know, thank you for having me on again today. Sure. It, generally, it, it is very hard to find income out in the marketplace. I mean, you guys probably see it and live it every day. You know, I think the only way to really do that in this market is to take significant duration or credit risk. And even then, you're only getting uh, minimal incremental yield. So for us, what we've been trying to do is kind of take the opposite tact and staying short and staying more defensive relative to, to our credit selections. And that's in the context of an overall diversified portfolio. But I think, you know, I think that main, uh, maintains a, a level of of reality for even yeah. an individual investor. How short in terms of How duration? Short, yeah, yeah, we're we're in the two to two to three year range in in, in strategic. It's more in the kind of mid to high twos, and uh, and we manage some other funds, and it's it's right in the in the context as well. So. Lon, I feel like you know we're hearing a little bit more, a little bit more from the Fed. We're getting a, a better sense of what the Jay Powell Fed looks like. Obviously, a lot of headlines out of Jackson Hole last week. What did you make of that? And what's your view of where uh, we go from here as, through the balance of the year, especially as it relates to rising interest rates? Sure. You know, I think the Fed, uh, per uh, Chairman Powell's uh, comments, remains on its on its gradual path. We are, at least for the rest of this year, I think we see two two hikes. You know, I think 
we are at basically the target for inflation, and we have low unemployment, uh, probably below the, the natural rate. But I think what was interesting, not just in Powell's speech, but in from the minutes, is in the minutes they talked about changing the language from remains accommodative. And in Powell's speech, he said, uh, you know, there does not seem to be an elevated risk of overheating. I think that sets up for them to be looking at the risks in the marketplace. And I think this gradual path could become something of a very gradual path or maybe even a, uh, a longer extended pause. How do corporate balance sheets look right now? I mean, we've spent the last few years, Lon, I feel like, you know, beating into our into our listeners this whole idea that money's been cheap. People have been, you know, reworking their balance sheets, cleaning them up, um, providing a cushion. How do they look, though, overall? Can we make some kind of general assessment, especially well, among think- the higher rated securities? Oh. Yeah. Uh, sure. You know, especially in the higher rated securities, I think the balance sheets have actually gotten worse since mm-hmm. the recession. They went in pretty good. And then over time, they have borrowed quite a bit. So that's one of the reasons we want to be defensive and in, in our in our choices, because it is sort of at a very high level, you know, closing in on two and a half to three times. And that looks actually like a level you see at the trough of a recession when cash flows have fallen. So I think when you when you picture yourself taking on risk, you have to put it in that context in which you're going to pay for it. Because on the flip side, spreads are also very, very tight. So when you're looking at risk reward, I don't think it favors it taking on a lot of credit or credit duration. You know, stay, stay short in industries or sectors that have more defensive cash flows. And Lon, when, when you look at some of the underlying data, you know, housing is something we've come back to several times this week in, in various aspects. We've actually been focusing on it uh, to some extent as it relates to cities and, and specific places, especially the sort of higher growth uh, areas. As you look at the housing picture, how does that factor into your view of the economy and your, your view of what you do with your portfolio? Uh, sure. I think it's one of the bigger risks out there in terms of how we proceed from here, you know, the weakness that we have seen. You know, one of the reasons we think that longer term 10-year plus rates can't go markedly higher is because of that, that limiting uh, impact or the effect that higher rates would have on, the, on an already weak housing sector. You know, we've already seen housing prices high and then with the high, somewhat higher rates already this year, I think that's slowing it down and puts big crimp on households' budgets to be able to afford it. And as you don't, as you don't have that turnover, you don't get that multiplier effect in the economy. And that's very important to, to, the, to the U.S. One thing I think, it's, I feel like it's a little bit of a debate, Jason. I feel like yesterday we talked with um, our own Dave Wilson about a chart, his chart of the day with Bob Dahl saying that maybe we're peaking, I think, in terms of profits. We have another guest coming up um, who's talking about the corporate earnings cycle continuing for another three to five years. What metrics are you looking at um, to get an idea of where we are in that cycle? I mean, how much visibility do you feel like you safely have? You know, I think that's that's a tough question, and and that's always the timing issue. You know, I think right now, if I could, if I had a crystal ball and I knew exactly when to jump out, I think it'd still be okay to take on some credit risk. But I think the point is, we we don't have that, and so, you know, we are obviously dealing with good 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 momentum. We've actually had seen some of the the best revenue growth we have seen in this cycle in the last five quarters, and that has actually kept those uh, cre- uh, corporate credit metrics in check. We've seen it stabilize and even improve a little bit. But the problem is we don't know when it's going to turn. And they're not improving really, really fast. And so we're looking at that revenue growth rate. You know, companies have taken a lot of 
uh, costs out of their business, and that's what's generated up until this point, a lot of the earnings growth. And so I would agree that I think we're kind of at the peak of the, the, the margin cycle. We could start seeing some pressure on it from wages. We haven't yet to date, but then that could uh, ultimately potentially start to derail the story. And one of the biggest risks is that whether it's stocks or investment-grade bonds or high yield, all of them are trading at pretty high valuations. Lon Erickson is Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Thornburg Asset Management. They oversee about $6 billion. He joins us from lovely Santa Fe, New Mexico. Lon, great to be with you. Turn your love around. Don't you turn me down. Well, I don't know if they're turning around, but I feel like heads continue to spin around all the political machinations that we see as we get closer and closer to the 2018 midterm elections. Last night was a big night, big day uh, in primary land all across the country. To help us make sense of it all, Arit John, she's a political reporter for us at Bloomberg in Washington, D.C. She joins us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio down there. Arit, I'm guessing a late night for you last night trying to make sense of it all. What were the standout races for you, both on the gubernatorial side, but also as we look toward uh, the House elections especially? The big upset last night was what happened in Florida when um, Andrew Gillum, the mayor of Tallahassee, beat out Gwen Graham, the former representative who was not expect like that was not expected at all. Gwen Graham has been in Congress. She was leading in all the polls leading up to the election, and Andrew Gillum just managed to pull it out. And so now we're looking at um, a very progressive Democrat who's called for Trump's impeachment facing off against um, Ron DeSantis, a Trump supporter, who largely won that primary against Adam Putnam because of Trump's backing. Arid, how important are these governor's races for an indication of what we might see come the midterms? Well, looking at if you look at the last 10 years, Democrats are completely out of fallen completely out of power at the state and local level. And looking ahead to 2021, when redistricting happens, the Democratic governor or the governors who are elected right now to four year terms are going to be the ones who can veto a lot of those um, those maps. And those maps are going to set the stage for congressional elections for the next 10 years. So what happens now if Democrats can't win in this cycle when there's grassroots energy and take over some of these Republican held seats, then that spells a lot of trouble for the next decade. So for the most part, Arit, and keep me honest here, it it feels like the the folks who are not winning are the establishment. I mean, as you said, you know, Graham it came from a political family. We've seen a lot of other establishment, quote unquote, establishment candidates fall uh, in the primaries. What does that tell us? Does that sort of throw a lot of conventional wisdom to the wind as we get closer and closer to Election Day in November? I don't know if we can say that the establishment is losing. There have been a lot of of Democratic primaries where the established candidate who we all thought was going to win ended up winning. But I think that there have been individual surprises. Like you look at um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York. You look at what happened last night. You look at um, Stacey Abrams, who maybe would have arguably been too liberal to win the Democratic primary, primary for governor in Georgia, who's won that race. Um, But then you look ahead to um, next week, there'll be a primary in Massachusetts for um, Mike Capuano's district. He's a 10-term incumbent. Um, There have been a lot of comparisons between that race and the New York primary. Mm. But he is, even though he's 
maybe part of the establishment. He's also a progressive. He also has the endorsement of the um, Congressional Black Caucus PAC against a black woman who's running against him. So it's hard to say that it's hard to say that progressives are winning or losing this season, but there have been a lot of standout races. Yeah, and if I think about some of the major issues that either could come before, you know, kind of moving this beyond in terms of Supreme Court, you know, what happens here, what happens ultimately come November uh, is key, especially when you kind of tie it all back to uh, the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, you look even in every race, there's some ramification of that Supreme Court nomination. Even governors can't vote on who um, the next Supreme Court justice is going to be. But if it's Brett Kavanaugh and if the court moves to the right, then Democrats have sort of been positioning themselves as, I'll be the last line of defense against abortion. I will make sure that in our state, women have a right to abortion, even if the Supreme Court takes that away from us. And we've seen even on labor issues um, in New York, um, Governor Cuomo has try to bolster unions in the wake of the Janus decision. And Arit, what, if any, uh, conclusions can we draw about a Trump endorsement at this point? I, I know it, it, it has been a big factor in a number of races. What do you make of that element as we move forward? Well, we saw um, last week in Wyoming that um, – the Trump, a Trump endorsement doesn't always help. But I think that we can say that a Trump rejection hurts a candidate. Mm. The, if, if you can be painted as someone who was not sufficiently loyal to the president, who didn't back him, like we saw in Alabama with Martha Robbie, she came out against the president after the Access Hollywood tape. And a former Democrat running as a Republican used that against her to say that she wasn't a loyal Republican because of that. And she had to go into a runoff and Trump had to step in at the last minute. And that's that helped her. Right. Interesting. Arit John, she is a political reporter for us down in Washington, joining us from that city, the nation's capital, in our Bloomberg 99.1 studio. We will be checking back in with her, Carol, obviously, as we get closer and closer to November. It's just around the corner, and it is heating up for sure. Yeah, exactly. Like, hard to, um, like, I can't even kind of quite get my head around that we're, we're heading into another important uh, election cycle. And I love what she talked about and reported about that, you know, Democrats, where they focus on what's going on in Washington and getting power back there. They talk about uh, her story, the power they wield at the state level being even more diminished, right? So it plays on so many different levels and it has repercussions. So definitely go uh, to Bloomberg.com, read more uh, in terms of her story and all things politics. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We've got about uh, 35 minutes left in today's trading session. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly and you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close. Rod Smith is director of investments at Riverfront Investment Group. They've got uh, roughly $7 billion in assets under management based in Richmond, Virginia, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio right here in New York. Good to see you again. We yeah, were it's wonderful to be about here. how long we've known each other. <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> we've seen a lot of market cycles. Um, I have been teasing throughout the few hours leading up to our interview um, about one of the things that 
that in the notes that we got from you yes. about the potential for a global earnings cycle for another three to five years. Yeah. What I mean, that's pretty bullish. Yep. What has I, to I, happen I, for I, that? I, well, I, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I, I tried to put out what's the good side of the world and what are the risks. The reward that I think is absolutely there is another three to five years. If you stop and think about it, only the U.S. is really long in the tooth in terms of its earning cycle. Right. Europe's only just a couple of years or three years into it. Uh, and the emerging markets are just coming out of a horrible down cycle. So two-thirds of the world uh, is only really starting its cycle. Now, the U.S. is longer in the tooth. So the key to the U.S., two things. Number one, the trade negotiations that are going on right now. Do they end up being a lot of noise but not a huge amount of effect and the global uh, trade routes remain open. Which is what it feels which like right is, now. You are, that's why markets are breaking out to a new high because it's starting to yeah. feel like that. Yeah. And secondly is does inflation come back? Um, uh, I was at a big meeting yesterday and what we all talked about was that the extraordinary thing about this cycle is that we've had record low uh, unemployment for a number of years and yet, no one in the markets is expecting any inflation for the next 10 years. If you look at, it's pretty amazing. you know, the markets have ways of pricing inflation yeah. 10 years out. Yeah. And nowhere is it more than, you know, two, two and a half percent. So there's optimism about trade, as you mentioned, this week because we've yes. had some movement. <laughs> this week. <laughs> we've had some movement here in, in North America. And yet China still looms out there. We were – Carol and I were taping our weekly Business Week show earlier. Yep. And you know, one of the sentiments that I was reminded of was this idea that you know, Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, had, had initially – his initial idea was like, all right, I'm going to get this taken care of. Then I'm going to move on to China. we got to right. figure out China. Right. How much does China worry you in the broader picture as something that could potentially slow down this global growth story that you described? Well, the answer to that question has to be, if you, if in terms of worrying, it has to be a lot. Yeah, I mean, China is a huge economy. It's driving, it's driven a huge amount of global growth, and uh, so the the U.S.'s trade um, strategy seemed fairly unclear at the beginning of the year. And you know, we've had this incredible year for earnings everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and markets were going nowhere, um, and everyone was sort of going, "Why not?" And I think the answer was because looking forward, people couldn't see past the trade thing yeah as you say the strategy's starting to emerge which is you know take your your big u.s might and pick people off one by one <laughs> and it and and the strategy is get europe and nafta done by the elections and then turn to china i'm yeah. sorry to, big intro into what you're saying the, the bottom line is the reason that china is not participating and emerging markets are lagging in this rally is because that's the one that people don't know now. They, they're starting to see clarity yeah. right. on Europe and North America. And so that is a big risk for global growth and global trade. Um, but it's also very important for the U.S. and Europe, and I've felt this all along, is China does do some things which are harmful. And what was bothering me was that the U.S., the world wasn't united again in, in, in trying to press that case. Well, this is what's the interesting in terms of trade issues. There's a fascinating story. It's, it's 
Bloomberg Business Week this week is a double issue, at least the magazine is, and there's an issue next week that's all about cities, but it, 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 there's one story that's fascinating that just talks about Shenzhen and what China's doing uh, in terms of really moving ahead when it comes to electric vehicles and technology. So some of the concerns when it comes to trade, I think, are really valid in maybe pushing back on China, whether it's over intellectual property or what have you. Yep. Um, as a as someone who is a, a, a fair trader and a free trader, right. as I think any investor wants to be and wants capital to go where it's going to be used best, um, it would be madness for either side to cut themselves off from one another. But right. be, be in no doubt, China has a plan with or without the, the United States. Right. Correct. And, and so you want to be able to be there and, and participate in it. I always like to try, what's the so what? Right. Okay, we're wonderfully fast. What's the so yeah. what? The so what for investors is that I think um, unless you have a strong view that Chinese trade negotiations are going to go badly, you should have a healthy allocation, whatever that is for you. And we have views about mm-hmm. that at Riverfront, but that's not my point here. You should have a healthy allocation to stocks because I don't think there is a reason to believe that the cycle is suddenly going to come to an end. Right. Right. All right. So I want to ask you about another hat that you wear, which is you are on the Investment Advisory Committee for the Virginia State Retirement System. That's a $50 billion uh, public pension, give or take. Probably 70 now. There you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you were the the former chair of that uh, committee. As you think about Mm -hmm. allocating from that perspective, what's the mood of a big public pension? Only got about 30 seconds. Okay. (laughs) What's fascinating, the mood of a big public pension is very like the mood of a potential retiree. It's the same thing. And the answer is, in order to get a return of 6 or 7%, you've got to have 70 to 75% of your money in riskier assets. And while returns of stocks, our 10-year forecasts have gone down a lot over the last four or five years, they are still in that 6, 7% range. Really? But you, that's six, it's not a lot. No. But um, the public fund can achieve that, but it has to take more risk and therefore be willing to put up with more pain in the in the tough times yeah and that's the critical thing for all investors is to have that long time cycle and and the virginia retirement system does it so well because they think long term thanks for listening to bloomberg business week you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com you can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m eastern only on bloomberg radio